It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Gist is sponsored by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. And by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So sad for the Sauds. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. Wait, which Arabia? He's Arabia. He's a Saud. The House of Saud. But he's dead. He is said to be a reformer. In foreign policy, they ask, will the new king, quote, maintain Abdullah's legacy of progress? legacy of progress. Here's how reformed this guy was. Had four wives. Well, the Times said he has four wives. Wikipedia lists seven, not including a deceased wife and the one he divorced. Imagine being divorced from a guy who could just go out and get a new wife and just ignore you. It's like Jay Leno scrapping a car just because he got a new Dusseldorf. Jay Leno doesn't do that. So you had to do something special to get divorced from King Abdullah, this reformer, this reformer who's personal fortune was estimated at $18 billion. His personal fortune, because you know that oil in the ground, that's his. He could give some of it to his people, but it's really his. So that's his personal fortune, stretching the definition of personal. So I'm having these thoughts. And by the way, he could have been a lot worse. He was a ally of the United States. Again, could have been a lot worse. More like we had common enemies. Fine. But I'm, I'm thinking about this and I'm realizing I'm getting this guy so wrong because everything I'm thinking about is from the perspective of the ruled, not the ruler, right? Because I am ruled. So when I hear about stories about how the incoming king, this new guy runs a private jail for all the wayward princes in Saudi Arabia. So these princes, there are 7,000 princes or heirs to the throne. They're definitely not going to get to most of them, but they don't want to go to regular jail and have to hobnob with non-royal criminals or really non royal law abiders, so they have their own jail. Or the fact that King Abdullah treasured a dagger given to him personally from the Fuhrer, Hitler. Oh, he loved his Hitler dagger. And of course, we think to ourselves, yeah, he's rich, but what a poor backward kingdom. But when Abdullah thought about meeting the president of the United States, he's thinking, sure, the people are rich, but what a poor forward guy. I mean, would you rather have the money, wealth, power, access to buy anything or a job for four, maybe if you're lucky, eight years, and then you have to hustle for the cash. From the point of view of the ruled, better to be here. From the point of view of the ruler, King Abdullah, the reformer, who is said to live 
quite plainly for a man of his wealth, I think that's the better way to go. Today in the spiel, I can't help it. What do you want me to do? I happen to have a doctorate in deflation with a concentration in laces. We're going to do Deflategate again. And before that, we will debut what's going to be an excellent ongoing series with a great guest. And it's all about storytelling. Really, it's all about being interesting. But first, a former State Department top official about how exactly the United States should go about countering the narrative of the jihadis. We live in a time when terrorists don't even have to provide training or arms. They just have to provide an idea or be a brand. And this is scary because information is easier to attain than ever before, even if the information is full of lies or propaganda or fake promises. This is what the West faces in its fight against ISIS or the remnants of Al-Qaeda. We're fighting an ideology that won't even argue out loud, an ideology whose appeal is so foreign to everyone tasked with combating it that it might be hard to craft a compelling counter narrative. Well, joining me now is Farah Pandith, who was appointed the first ever special representative to Muslim communities by Secretary, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So you've seen these videos, you've seen recruiting videos or pieces of recruiting social media. Describe what an AQAP or or an ISIS type uh, video or piece of social media that's shared might look like and what would be a good counter to that? Yeah, so I mean, that's a very important um, uh, optic when we think about the videos, uh, because these are digital natives and they're, they're accessing things on their cell phones. Um, they're looking at images that resonate in terms of uh, sound, in terms of uh, the actual message. They, they're using very particular language that makes a difference both uh, historically and religiously. They use, uh, sometimes they use music, they use iconography, they use different types of things that actually trigger a whole series of things for these millennials that make sense. And it's sort of like, you know, a marketing campaign. As we think about how very swift advertisers think about selling a product, they know who their audience is. They know a particular uh, image is going to evoke emotion. It is about emotion. It's about moving the, the heart of a young person from just watching something to being very passionate about what it is that they're seeing. Some of these things are, are, are not as sophisticated as others, but the essential elements have to do with the storyline, the narrative that they're putting out there, that in fact, the consistent framework of this us and them, look at what they are doing to us. Um, You must defend, you must take part, you must be given purpose. And that idea of purpose, the the sense that you can, you, this one person who is 14-year-old or 17-year-old or 25-year-old, can make a difference in this larger uh, effort that they're putting uh, out is a really powerful thing for a young person to think about, that they have a role to play. So people who want to put forth the alternative narrative, the number one thing I hear them saying is to point out that ISIS is a lie. Is this the smartest way to go? Or is it better to maybe emphasize ISIS says this, but look, they put out uh, a death warrant on this American, or ISIS says X, and I'm just using ISIS, we've talked about a lot of these organizations, ISIS says X, but here's the terrible things that they don't tell you about. No, so I mean, what you're saying is important. We have to actually be able to poke holes in their arguments, for sure. But the question is, who is the one who's poking holes in their argument? Um, If it's only government that's saying it, 
government has to do it. We have a role to play as government. But as but the non-government actors actually are the most forceful and the most compelling and credible in, in that. So one technique, of course, is to debunk the things that they're putting out there, demonstrate that what they're saying is faulty and hypocritical. But the question is, do you really think that 16-year-old is going through an analytical discussion <laughs> about whether or not there are holes in, that, in the bad guy's argument? No. Right. And beyond that, people who make well-crafted political ads will tell you that counter-arguments actually, in many ways, just serve to confirm the argument. It just, that's how the brain works. It solidifies the argument as at least something that deserves attention. What we have to do is be as nimble and as savvy about how we are pushing out counter-narratives in a non-government space and use all of the elements of our understanding of young minds to be able to manipulate the ecosystem so that the bad guys are not the only ones who are leading the charge on an ideology. And will this come from the State Department? Will there be 10 people working full-time in counter-narrative? I know that the Army mm-hmm. has a literally has a PSYOPs uh, division, and they're in charge of things like blanketing the countryside with leaflets saying we're about to bomb you and, and uh, disgracing Saddam Hussein and things like that. I mean, how many people? Where is it going to come from? Who's going to fund it? It needs to come from civil society, and it needs to come from the private sector. The vast majority of efforts that have to happen in this world cannot only come from government. It it is not a credible mechanism. It's too slow, and it's not nimble enough. Farah Pandith served as the first-ever special representative to Muslim communities at the State Department. She is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Gist is brought to you by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Acura understands the power of performance, how every moment should be infused with emotion and every movement should evoke a thrill. A great performance is what Acura wants drivers to experience every time they get behind the wheel, which is why Acura is proud official presenting sponsor of the Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. Dos Equis has this ad. It's been going on forever. The most interesting man in the world. But the guy they put forward, I don't know. You know what? I'm reminded of the Michael Kinsley quote about Al Gore being an old person's idea of a young person. That's what that Dos Equis most interesting man in the world is. I think I'm sitting next to the guy I consider just about the most interesting man in the world. His name is Matthew Dix. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Now, I'm going to read to you some of your bios. And since you do a million and a half things, you have a million and a half bios. Like, if you go to the Moth storytelling bio, it says you're an elementary school teacher and author of the novels Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, Something Missing, and Unexpectedly Milo. That's all true? That's true. And it also says you're a 12-time Moth storytelling slam champion. It's uh, 16 now, but Now yes. it's up to 16. Now, if you go to Amazon and look up, say, one of your books, like Unexpectedly Milo, it also says that you're behind a rock opera called The Clowns. Yes, that's true. Wow. And if you go to your blog, it lists all the books and lists the clowns, lists a bunch of papers you wrote for, and then says the following. Elementary school teacher, public speaker, blogger, wedding DJ, minister, life coach, and a lord of Sealand. What the hell's Sealand? 
Sealand is the country off the coast of England. It's right. that platform. Yes. And for about 50 bucks, you can <laughs> become a Lord of Sealand, which my wife was very angry when she found out I did. <laughs> but it is such fodder for conversation that the $50 has more than paid off. Yeah. Well, because that's what you need is fodder for conversation. Because the minister, because the wedding DJ, because the... Just being an elementary school teacher is usually enough to dine out on. But why do you have the need to do so many things? My wife says I collect jobs. Uh Uh-huh. Really, it comes from an existential crisis that I um, perpetuate in my life where I can't actually quit something. Because if I quit something, that signals that I've taken one step closer to death. Uh-huh. So as long as I continue to accumulate things, then I can trick myself into believing I will never die. So when you're up there at the pearly gates or whatever your faith dictates the myth is, he'll say, oh, we made a mistake. This guy's a Lord of Sealand and a wedding DJ. We can't be taking him just now. I don't take any chances. I'll take every <laughs> advantage that I have. So what we're going to do with you today, what are we going to do with you, Matthew? We're going to keep having you back, and we want to focus on storytelling. Uh, You have a lot to tell. We'll get to some of those. But because you are a multiple moth champion, because you do storytelling in Hartford, and I I hope, it is our hope, that you'll be able to take some GIST listeners who think they might have storytelling in them and uh, be able to coach them up. Uh, Is this usually what goes on in your... uh, Hartford organization, people who think they might be storytellers come to you and want to know how to tell a story? Yeah. uh, They come to me not specifically to tell stories on our stage most often. They come to me to improve their business life or their personal life or they want their family members to listen to them in a way that they're not being listened to now. But most of those people, if I want them to get on the stage, I can eventually gently push them onto the stage. And what percentage of them, when they explain their problems to you, do you say, I just don't see it. You seem compelling. And what percentage do you say, yeah, I can see why they're tweeting you out? Um, (laughs) I think that a lot of people come to me and they don't understand what the story really is. So I would say a great percentage of them have good stories, but they don't understand really what their true story is. Because I'm going to guess they know a thing happened and they know that thing was important, but they don't know how that event equals a story. People come to me and say, I went to Tanzania. I want to tell that story. And I always say that is not a story and you will bore everyone with that. Um, I believe fundamentally that every story is five seconds from your life. Every great story, you have to identify the five seconds that sort of hit you and changed you in some way. And then the rest of your story is everything that goes in that brings that five seconds to the best clarity possible. Okay. So I fight people to find the five seconds from their lives that they want to tell us and not the trip to Tanzania. Okay. You've had so many things happen to you. Um, you know, you were held at gunpoint. We'll get to that one day. In fact, one of your many bios says that you were the first student in high school to be suspended for inciting a riot upon yourself. We'll get to that one day. But you won this moth thing 16 times. Think about maybe the most anodyne story you told. What was the five seconds of that? The five seconds of the story I think people like the most okay. from me is I'm sitting at the dining room table. And my son is throwing food on the floor, and it's making me crazy. And I asked my wife what we're going to do about it. And she goes to the doctor and asks the doctor for strategies. And the doctor says, you have to take the food away. And so she tells me that the next night. She says, we have to take the food away. And then she says to me, and I know that's going to be really hard for you. And that's true, but I don't know why she knows it. So I say to her, why do you say that? And she says, because when you were a kid, I know you didn't have enough food. And I had never told my wife that. But she had put enough of the stories together 
to figure that out. And I had that moment where my, where my wife knew me better than I realized she did. Oh, wow. And then she told me that every morning I pack Clara's lunchbox and I overpack it with more food than a kid could ever eat. And she comes downstairs and unpacks it. And she's never wanted to tell me that because she knows how much pride I take in being able to send my kid to school with food. And that is better than the robbery and the, all of the things that in, appear in my bio that seem extraordinary. It's those little tiny moments that people don't recognize in their lives that I try to get them to see. That works on a lot of levels. There's the intergenerational level. You and Clara, but also the implication of your parents if they're talking about you growing up. There is a visual in there, you packing and unpacking the lunchbox, you know, that moment. So I don't know, maybe because we're trained like this in the age we live in, but we see things as a movie. And I saw it exactly like that. And there's a revelation, you know, and you learn something about yourself. Are all those elements necessary for every story? Are all those elements fundamental to a good story? I think the most fundamental thing is there has to be a change in a person from the beginning to the end. And it doesn't have to be a good change. I tell stories where I, end, I start as a good guy and I realize I'm an awful person. Those tend to be some of people's favorite stories. But there has to be a fundamental change in a person from one point to the other. If there isn't, we're just looking at the same person. And the story means nothing if it hasn't impacted you in some way. That gut-wrenching five seconds of your life is what people want to hear. When you teach storytelling, do you adhere to... Are you pretty rigid about structure? Are you like one of these script writing gurus, McKee, who basically says within the first 20 minutes you have to have rising action, there's a three-act structure, the denouement is this long. I mean, it's really regimented. Are you like that? I'm not. I have have a list of 17 rules of storytelling, (laughs) and I'm very flexible in them. But things like I believe stories should be told from the beginning to the end. There's lots of people who love to start in the middle of a story. There used to be a show called Alias. It opened every time with Sidney Bristow and some unbelievably horrible problem. And then it went back to two days before. And you spent the entire show waiting to get back to that unbelievable problem. So I always say you want your audience wondering and not waiting. So I say you have to tell it chronologically. I tell people that they should tell it in the first person if possible for many reasons. So I've got some rules, but I break the rules and the people I work with break the rules. And some stories are better told um, yeah. in other ways. Sunset Boulevard begins with the guy face down in the swimming pool and we figure out how he got there and right. that's one of the greatest movies of all time. But sometimes other you know, Hollywood movies will just use that as a gimmick to cover right. up the fact that the story's not that interesting. I'll just start at a weird place. Right. I would say yeah. you have to be excellent to start at the end. You have yeah. to be an extraordinary person to do that. Has being so good ruined you for boring people? Some people, I mean, I think it's like one of the great traits. I mean, probably the richest people, I don't know about the richest, but like the third richest people around are the people who could just suck up that boredom and go to those meetings and nod at that PowerPoint presentation. I can't do it. It's a flaw. I guess because I'm a teacher, I fundamentally believe that everyone has possibility. So when I'm at a dinner party, the question I ask people the most is, tell me how you ended up in the job that you're in. And that tends to generate the most interesting That's stories. That's a good one, yeah. 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 So don't tell me what you did. I actually tell them, please don't tell me what you did. I want that to be the culmination of your story. And that gets them to talk. And so I, I guess I sort of manipulate people so they don't bore me. Yeah. And then if they are, I move on. Now, here's where I interrupt the interview with our call to action, how you're going to be involved with this storytelling series. We need a hero, a storyteller, the coach to a final performance. Insert Rocky Montage. The phone number to call 
is 304-607-GIST. But don't go on and on and on, even though clearly the reason you're calling is that you need storytelling help. The time limit is one minute for leaving this message. We need your name, a bit about you, and then the gist, if you will, of the story. Now, you say five seconds, but when you told me that anecdote, I think it probably lasts around 20. I would say in a minute, Yeah. we should get their name. Yeah. We should get, like... A tiny bit about them. So yeah. I might say I'm Matthew Dixon. I'm an elementary school teacher. And then um, sort of give us the, an idea of the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. No cliffhangers. Like we're not going to call people because we want to hear the end of the story. We want to hear what the story could be. So don't leave us in suspense. And I would say tighter, the tighter the better. Try yes. not to take up the whole minute. Don't sing. And I know that sounds extremely obvious, but there's a lot of people who are looking to sing and can't get on stage, so they try to use storytelling as a vehicle for that. So avoid that. Avoid stories, if possible. We're not going to be impressed with the fact that you met someone famous. Right. That, it, that doesn't make a great story. So we want to have stories about your personal life and a moment in your life that really impacted you in a significant way. It does not have to have Michael Jackson in that moment. You know, should they avoid bragging? Should these not be accomplishments? Should these be uh, pitfalls? Any guidelines for that? The best stories tend to be the stories of failure, the moment that you did not succeed at something. Stories of heroes work, but oftentimes, I just worked with a kid who was doing this. He ended up the hero at the end of the story, but the trick is to marginalize yourself and to marginalize your victory. So don't overblow what you've done. Actually underplay it. Yeah. And make sure you set yourself up as the fool who happened to stumble upon this victory, which frankly is how most people stumble upon their victories anyway. Matthew Dix is a lot of things, as you've heard, and he's going to be our storytelling coach and companion for the next few weeks on The Gist. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. So a lot of post stuff is good, like a uh, postmodern way to view the world. That's pretty good. And a post-colonial mindset, that's a way to orient yourself and thinking with how much of the world works. There's an exception, the post office. The post office isn't very post office. In fact, it seems stuck in office, some of the worst aspects of office. So what can you do? Ah, forget office, thinkabout.com, stamps.com. Here's how stamps.com works. You use a computer and printer. Who's yours? And you buy U.S. postage. Who's theirs? Like I said, official U.S. postage. You can put on any letter or any package, and then the mailman will pick it up. You can weigh it yourself. How? Let me tell you a little bit about our no-risk offer. What our no-risk trial offer does by using the promo code THEGIST, here's what you get. $110 bonus offer, a digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in THEGIST. That's Stamps.com and enter THEGIST. Post haste. And now the spiel, Inflation Nation. I give you the lead story on last night's NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. Take it, Brian. Good evening. A potential cheating scandal involving one of the great teams and great quarterbacks in the history of the game continues to consume a colossal amount of time and attention surrounding... The industry of media, that is CBS, also led with the story. Good evening. 
The integrity of the most popular sport in America is being called into question just days before its biggest game. That was Scott Pelley intoning. He's an intoner, that's Scott Pelley. And over at ABC, well, thank God ABC was in Havana, so the lead wasn't the NFL, it was Cuba. But the first domestic story they mentioned... Their superstar quarterback, Tom Brady, facing the cameras and tough questions, heading into his sixth Super Bowl 10 days from now. I did not think we'd have to address this story again, but I cannot believe where we are. Not as a deflated football story, where we are as a nation. So I bring you now, here on The Gist, I bring you rolling coverage of America Loses Its Shit. America Loses Its Shit, and The Gist is there. We are now at day five of America Loses Its Shit. Allow me to ask, could it be that we're asking football to do what no sport, pastime, or popular entertainment can possibly do? Could it be that we all watched Rudy or Newt Rockne All-American or Remember the Titans without enough of a filter, took it a little too much to heart? Could it be that this is the equivalent of the summer of shark bites, plus reports on the knockout game, plus Gary Condon inference raised to the power of missing white women, and you've got the elements of America loses its shit. Now, one reason I think this story has just gone bananas is that it has a lot of elements that transfer to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Like someone who doesn't know football, a non-fan, the fan, even the partially informed fan, like most fans are, can explain it, and there are two or three, oh, I didn't know that moment, so it's fun to explain. Like, you tell them, well, all footballs have to be inflated to a certain size. Oh, I didn't know that. And then you explain, yeah, but if you underinflate the football on a cold day, it helps with grip. Oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting, and maybe I get credit for caring about science if I listen to that fact without yawning. And then when you tell them how quarterbacks are very particular about their footballs, and they keep their own footballs, and they beat their footballs up, but they still can't deflate their footballs, that person will say, oh, that's interesting. So you got three of those, oh, I didn't know that, or oh, that's interesting. And then it's also really important that it's the Super Bowl, obviously, but the team we're talking about. Because if I told you the same thing was true, that the Atlanta Falcons deflated their footballs or that the Cincinnati Bengals deflated their footballs, right? Cincinnati Bengals, just a team. Atlanta Falcons, just a team. Jacksonville Jaguars, barely a team, but just a team. And the Patriots mean something. The Yankees are the number one hated team in sports. And the Cowboys maybe are number two, but they stink. The Patriots are really the number two most hated team in sports. You have a gut reaction, an emotional reaction when you hear the Patriots. If you do know about football, it triggers the reptilian parts of your brain. And that is why we've just all lost our shit. The sports world, the media, we have just gone insane. Some more than others. Here's WFAN's Mike Francesa, who was not pleased yesterday by Tom Brady's press conference. Tom, have you been talked about a league which tells you that the league's dragging us into next week? Their plan is to get past the Super Bowl before they meet out suspensions, which will be a disaster. Mark my words for Roger Goodell, a disaster. Because now you got the NFL dragging its feet on this again, because how could it be Thursday and they haven't talked to the quarterback yet? How is that possible? That the NFL has not talked to Tom Brady at 4 o'clock on Thursday. What did he deflate and when did he deflate it? We want answers. We need accountability. Else the sport that gave us chronic traumatic encephalopathy and a two-week suspension for girlfriend punching will never be the beacon of decorum and sanity that, well, actually it never was. Hey, 
when Aaron Hernandez of a semi-obscure team, okay, it was the New England Patriots, when Aaron Hernandez was arrested for murder, it did not lead any of the nightly news broadcasts. In fact, only ABC mentioned it the night that he was arrested, and that was amidst coverage of a gay rights ruling and Paula Dean's wackadoo remarks. But of course, the question now is, well, let me quote the Boston Globe over here. What do I tell my kids about Deflategate? Oh, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's every parent's nightmare. The cruel truths about slightly underinflated sporting goods. Actually, the article's pretty awesome. It has phrases like, and I'd say that much ouch requires the couch. If the Pats were in family therapy, they'd learn a concept known as the trust bank. Their trust bank is low because of Spygate. So anyway, here's how I navigated these waters with a seven-year-old football fan. All right, now I got to tell you about what's going on in the Super Bowl and what are the two teams in the Super Bowl? Seattle Seahawks and New England Patriots. So the Patriots are having a controversy about the ball they used. Have you heard about this? What do you mean the ball they used? Well, maybe you'll hear some things and maybe some rumors. So I want to set the record straight and correct any impressions that you may have. They used a ball in their championship game that was slightly deflated. Do you know what that means? No, I do not. Well, it means that instead of being pumped up all the way with air, it was only pumped up mostly with air. What does that make you think of the New England Patriots? I don't think they're going to win. Why? Because they use a deflated ball. And if they use a deflated ball, it will... Maybe if they throw it, it will just boom, flat on the floor, and it will become all flat. Except the game already happened, and they used the deflated ball, and they won 45-7. to seven. They won against who? Uh, Indianapolis. What's that? What's that team's name? Colts. Yeah. So... The thing is, people say they cheated because the ball wasn't inflated properly. Can you live with that? No, I cannot. What do you think, what punishment do you think the Patriots should get? If they win the Super Bowl with that ball, they should lose the Super Bowl. Well, they're not allowed they to... They should lose half of the, the points. Oh, so maybe... Are you saying every touchdown should be worth only three points? Yeah. That's interesting. So they can still play, they just have to score twice as many points to win. Yeah. That's a great solution. Do you think that they're bad people because they're cheaters? No. Why not? I thought that cheating is bad, so how do you reconcile that? Because they're a great football team. Yeah. They really they really are good defenses. That's true. That wasn't affected by the ball. All right, I just want to make sure that you're not too disturbed by these events, that they don't make you think that uh, the pace... Are they pay- going to use um, the ball again and... No, the NFL is going to be in charge of balls, and they're not going to let the Patriots use the bad ball. How do you know? Because everyone's paying attention to it. Like, this is the most important thing in the world. Do you think it's very important? Yeah. Could you name anything else in the world that's more important than the slightly deflated ball the Patriots have used? Yep. Go ahead, name something. My mom and your mom and you. Well, it's good to hear that of the triumvirate of motherhood, God, and football, we can still believe in the first two. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi asks, how do I talk to my mom about pole vaulting? 
Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, wants to know how to bring up this issue with his cubs, marking territory through urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, wants to know how to talk to your kids about increasing their listenership to more panel discussions via earbuds. You can go to iTunes and check us out and subscribe to us and give us a review. All those things are really helpful. Slate.com slash gist emails our email. You could use the app Yo to figure out when we come up. Just subscribe to the podcast part of that. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Slate Gist answering the question, how do I bring up the uncomfortable intergenerational topic of matzo deodorant? The answer, as with most things, is through song. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gap Fest, how will Republicans counterattack against President Obama's aggressive State of the Union? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.